Hello, friends. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so happy to see you all. And we know many of you are joining live. Many of you are joining Zoom. And most of you are on the recording side. So wherever you are, thank you for joining us. And um, we are very thrilled to have this really important conversation today um, around um, organ donation uh, with two, two great scholars and, and leaders in the field. Um, and uh, we're gonna discuss some of the pressing issues, um, some of the barriers, some of the opportunities, some of the legislation, and we hope you'll participate. Feel free to join the conversation or to chat wherever you are. We'll be monitoring the various places. First, I wanna introduce Mar uh, Martha Gershon, who is a nonprofit consultant, writer, and community volunteer with over 40 years of leadership experience in Fortune 500 corporations, startup ventures, and nonprofit organizations. In 2017, she retired as executive director of Jackson County PASA, court-appointed special advocates, and now provides executive coaching for development and strategy consulting to local and national nonprofits. In 2018, Martha donated a kidney at the Mayo Clinic to a woman she read about in the Kansas City Jewish Chronicle. She co-authored a book, Kidney to Share. I will share the link to that, um, both here and in Facebook published by Cornell University Press about the experience and has given presentations at more than 35 transplant clinics, medical schools, and bioethics centers on her experience as a living kidney donor. Martha was named special advisor to the Kidney Transplant Collaborative and serves on the regional board of the National Kidney Foundation. She is a patient engagement living donor fellow at Houston Methodist Hospital and blogs regularly on their Explore Transplant website. Martha holds an MBA from the Harvard Business School where she studied marketing, service operations, and customer experience. She also earned a graduate diploma in economics from the University of Stirling, Scotland, where she was a Rotary International Fellow. Martha lives in Fairway, Kansas with her, her husband, Don Goldman, who is executive director and CEO of Jewish Family Services of Greater Kansas City. Um, before I forget, I'm going to now post into the Zoom chat, and Eddie's going to post in the uh, Facebook chat uh, an article that Martha wrote in the um, in the uh, Kansas City Star, and also here one in Stat News. These are both both very important, worth and uh, recommend reading. And in a moment, I'll post her book as well. I now also want to introduce David Farber, who is a lawyer and lobbyist in the FDA and life sciences practice of King and Spalding, a global law firm, resident in the Washington D.C. office. David is working intensely on organ transplant policy and uh, actively working with policymakers and other stakeholders on reforming the federal approach to living donation across the U.S. David and his wife live in Bethesda, Maryland, and he's the proud father of three grown daughters. And um, I am now going to uh, share uh, the website of uh, Kidney Transplant Collaborative so you can check that out as well. So thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Great. Uh, so first, um, David, I was hoping you could, um, you know, lay out the landscape a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what's happening in kidney transplant in America. Uh, thanks. <clears throat> and thanks for uh, having me today. And thanks for allowing me to, to share the stage with uh, a, a real hero in our community, uh, Martha Gershon. Um, her, her work is brilliant. Um, what she has done personally, and then what she has shared with the rest of us about her work is 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 really incredible stuff. And I urge everybody get the book. I'm not here to sell Martha's book, but I I'm going to do it anyhow. 
um, because it's it's eye opening in terms of of where we are in uh, on kidney transplant. Let me uh, dial back. We're going to get into the details of um, you know some of the bumps in the road to uh, um, to being a, a living donor. Um, but let me pull back from that and give you sort of a global perspective on uh, the state of transplant in America today. And the bad news is that the, the, the state of transplant in America today is a disaster. Um, let's talk kidneys only. There are other kinds of organs for transplant, hearts, livers, lungs, pancreas, et cetera. Kidneys alone, um, where, where we have hundreds of thousands of, of Americans on dialysis, and this is not only a conversation about America, it's a global conversation as well, but we'll focus on the United States today. We have hundreds of thousands of Americans on dialysis with all the cost and expense and, and harm to their quality of life that goes with being on dialysis and sitting in that chair tied to that machine uh, at least three days a week, four hours a, uh, a, a visit. Um, there are 93,000 Americans on the wait list for a kidney transplant. Um, the average wait time for a kidney transplant, three to five years. And the, the, the heartbreaking aspect of that is that, unfortunately, every day, um, including today, 17 people on the wait list will die waiting for a kidney donor. Um, that is a national tragedy, 17 people a day. And the, the, the estimates go actually a little bit higher. That's the conservative figure. Um, unfortunately, the wait list is growing faster uh, than the number of transplants. The number, there are approximately 26,000 transplants a year. Um, of that number, 20,000 are coming from deceased donors. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and about 6,000 are coming from living donors, which is where we're going to spend the majority of our time talking uh, um, uh, talking today. Um, but, but the number of people being added to the wait list is happening at a much faster rate than uh, um, the number of transplants um, and people coming off the wait list. So we are losing ground year after year after year. And this is not new. Um, th this, this has been the case for the last 20 years, and I could even go back further. Um, it's an issue that, uh, that affects me and my family personally. My grandmother died of, of uh, uh, kidney failure. My mother died of kidney failure. Right, unfortunately, there's a hereditary uh, condition in our family called polycystic kidneys, which I predict many of your uh, uh, listeners um, have heard about. Um, and and you know, and there are thousands of people, uh, hundreds of thousands of people in America affected by this today. Um, so I've given you the statistics about um, uh, uh, the uh, transplant rates. Let me just give you. Uh, um, one framing uh, statistic that I think will help guide the rest of the conversation. Um, looking back over the last 20 years, and there's great data on this, it's, it's widely published um, in, in multiple data sites. It's easy to Google this data and, and to find it. Um, but we track every year how many uh, um, transplants have, have uh, occurred um, and whether the source of that transplant is a deceased donor. In other words, someone who unfortunately passed away think a motorcycle accident, actually uh, overdose in some instances, which is terrible to think about. Um, but about 1% of, of people who die in America each year are eligible to have their uh, um, organs, including their kidneys, uh, recovered and then transplanted. Deceased donation in 2002 was at a rate of 8,500. <clears throat> and over the last 20 years, to the uh, last data we have, 
is 2022, uh, we're now up to 20,500 donors. So 250% increase. Um, and that's great. And more needs to be done. We can talk about all the problems and um, in, in deceased donation, um, the different players in that space and the tragedy of, of rejected organs um, where, where an organ's recovered, but then it's never transplanted, lost organs, and sadly it happens all the time. Um, it, you know, there's, a, there's an allegation that, that the system loses organs more frequently than airplanes, than air, airlines lose uh, baggage. Um, you know, and, and that's a whole other conversation. We're not going to get into that today. But we have seen the steady increase over 250% increase over 20 years um, in, in deceased donations. And that's a good trend, and trend, probably not enough. We hope it continues. The other source of, of donations, and this is where we are going to, what we do want to dive into today, is living donors, people like Martha and others on this call, right? Um, here's the statistics on that. 2002, 6,200 uh, living donors donated a, a kidney. Um, we'll talk about what that process involves and how it unfolds. Um, but 6,200 in 2002. Today, five, 2022, the number is 5,800. We have not made any increase or picked up any ground there. In fact, we're probably losing a little ground. I mean, you know, Maybe you could explain the last two years, the numbers were down because of COVID. But even before that, the numbers did not materially increase. And that is um, what we really want to focus on today. It's a great opportunity um, for all of us on a one-on-one -on -one individual basis, but nationally, um, you know, from a healthcare policy and healthcare impact basis, to really change this dynamic. If we can generate more living donors, um, we can really begin to take a bite out of the wait list, um, save lives, um, and 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 really turn the tide on what's been the trend for the last twenty years. Yeah. Wow. Very powerful. Thank you so much. We know, we know that one of the highest Jewish values is pikuach nefesh of saving life, and anything we can do on this front uh, to increase these numbers and take people off this waiting list is something that we as a community ought to do. So, Martha, um, I know you've talked about, written about many of the barriers there are to being a living kidney donor. Can you um, can you share some of those barriers, what they were like for you and what other people are experiencing today? Sure. Thanks, Shmuley. And thanks, David, for the context. Um, I, I think first I want to start by saying uh, being a living kidney donor was one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. Um, I'm going to talk about the things that make it hard, but I'd like to start with saying it's transcendent. And I, Shmuley, I know from reading your book and talking to you, you feel that way about the experience too. Um, you and I had some very different experiences, but uh, we both started essentially the same way. We heard about someone who needed a kidney and we thought, maybe I can do this. Maybe this is my mitzvah. Um, in my case, it was a woman I read about in the Kansas City Jewish Chronicle, not someone I ever met. Uh, I knew that the odds of, of matching to a complete stranger are really very low, about one in 100,000, but I felt lucky. I can't explain it, but from the minute I read that article, I, I knew it was going to be me. Um, and I, I called the Mayo Clinic, uh, went through um, some rudimentary testing, essentially blood and pee. Um, and sure enough, uh, I was the one in 100,000 match um, for Deb Porter Gill, who lives in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, we're both of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, 
But um, if you look at my website or look at the book and see her picture, she's a slim, slinky, blonde. I mean, really, it does not look like we have common genetic material. Medically and surgically, this was so much easier than I ever expected. People have a lot of fears about this and, and they share them with you. Um, oh my God, what if you die on the table? Uh, what if your health suffers after the transplant? The real truth is that surgically, it was kind of common abdominal surgery. I've also had my gallbladder removed. Um, I, I've never delivered a child by C-section, but my daughter-in-law has. They're very similar. Somebody cuts you down the middle and they take some stuff out. Um, living with one kidney is not particularly different than living with two kidneys. I have not noticed a, a change in my health, in my fitness, in, in my life, um, and, I, and I do not expect to. But it was harder practically than I ever expected, ever thought about. And because of the background that Shmuley shared with you, my background of the Harvard Business School and consumer operations, this, this rubbed me the wrong way. I felt like if this was any other business, I'd try and fix it. Maybe I can try and fix this. And like most advocates, I started by writing about my experience. I'm gonna just give you the real top headlines. It's very expensive to donate a kidney. And that's ridiculous. Already kidney donors, living kidney donors, are providing the vital element to make this surgery possible. Uh, your medical expenses are covered. Um, I always like to tell the story. When I checked in the night before surgery, they handed me a bottle of uh, laxative from the pharmacy to please swallow before the surgery. And they said, that'll be $12. And I said, I'm a living kidney donor. They said, on the house. I mean, you pay for nothing medically. But in my case, the surgery was six hours drive from our home. We live in Kansas City. I donated at the Mayo Clinic. People say, why did you do that? That's because that's where my recipient was listed. Donor goes where recipient is. That's how this works. And in order to go there for the evaluation and testing to be sure I was healthy enough to donate. And then for the surgery, and in, in our, our case, our surgery was called off the first time because my recipient became very ill and we had to reschedule it. And then to go back six months later to be sure I was still okay and healthy. That combination of driving, of hotels, of restaurants, was $5,000 out of pocket that we paid for. My recipient's family reimbursed us later, and that was lovely. It was gracious, but not every recipient can do that. It's certainly not insurance reimbursed. And also my husband missed 18 days of work. I was already retired, but if I had not been retired and our family had depended on my income, I could not have done this mitzvah. So I joined with like-minded people to start to advocate for ways that we could make this financially neutral for living donors. The hospital makes money. We know the surgeon makes money. You could, you know, we could think along the way that certainly the recipient benefits. I suspect the insurance company ends up okay because they don't have to pay for dialysis anymore. But the living donor, the person giving up the organ, ends up receiving a bill. There are a lot of nonprofits set up to help with this, and Shmuley can share his experience. I, I know that working with Renewal um, in New York is, is one organization, particularly working with J Jewish kidney patients and Jewish donors, that helps smooth that, and for very, very low-income donors. But for folks like me and my husband here in the Midwest, who are comfortably upper middle class, it's out of your own pocket. 
there were also some significant logistic barriers. And I'll just throw one of them out. You can read the book for the whole long list. But 30 days before we get to this um, procedure, I get a call from the from my kidney transplant coordinator. She says, uh, we need we need to run a blood test 30 days before by law for HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis. We cannot give an organ to someone um, who's about to take immune compromising drugs if the organ is infected with those very serious chronic, sometimes fatal diseases. I said, sure, no problem. Uh, I'll do what I've done before. I'll have my doctor draw blood and I'll ship it up FedEx. No, no, no. For some reason, I don't know why, this blood has to be shipped on dry ice. I don't know about you all, but I am not a shipping and receiving expert. And it turns out that buying dry ice for shipping purposes and finding a shipper who will handle dry ice, it's a fairly dangerous substance, actually. It can like blow the plane up if you don't package it right. It took me days to figure this out. And as I thought so many times, I'm educated. I read English as the first language. I have a car. I have gas in the car and I'm retired. So my time is my own. But if I were a 30-year-old single mother of two trying to save the life of my sister, and I did not have those resources, and God forbid I did not read English as a first language, I could never have gotten that dry ice thing done. Why there isn't some system where you just go have your blood drawn and they've already worked it out with the carrier, why Mayo didn't ask for this earlier, there's sort of nothing in the system to make it easy for the person who's donating. So I wrote a book to complain, to vetch about the problems. I became an advocate to try and change some of those things. Uh, part of that um, uh, practice was, was hooking up with David Farber and the Kidney Transplant Collaborative, which I think has some smart solutions. But always, as I close my part, I wanna say, none of this means that you shouldn't become a living kidney donor. All of this is worth it. What volunteer project, what mitzvah doesn't have its own obstacles? I would just like to reduce the obstacles, especially for people without resources, so that more people can feel this extraordinary transcendent feeling of literally saving another person's life. Beautiful, Martha. So powerful. Thank you so much for that. It resonates so much for me and things I've heard and experienced. Um, David, let's go a little bit to what's happening right now on the legislative front and um, uh, anything that folks here might be able to learn more about and potentially advocate for. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and uh, again, thanks thanks to both of you for what you've done. <clears throat> it can't be said enough, as Martha points out in the book, you are donors, right? You are philanthropists. Um, we only wish the hospitals would treat you as, as if you gave them $100,000 gift, which you did because you gave the Medicare program a $100,000 gift. Actually, it was a $136,000 gift. Um, but but we don't recognize donors for, for um, what they have done and, and how they've done it. So in answer to your question um, and picking up an, um, on Martha's experience and the experience of dozens and dozens of others um, that, that we have talked to, um, we have put together legislation called the Living Kidney Donor Support Act. Um, it is uh, being discussed in front of the Congress right now that would take on exactly the problems uh, that Martha identified. Um, the legislation really takes on uh, uh, or has three primary goals. The first is education. Today, there is nothing in the federal infrastructure around, trans around transplant that 
looks at or tries to address the, li the, the living donor um, or donors writ large, but particularly the living donor. Um, the, the history of, of federal policy and legislation and regulation around transplant goes back 40, almost 50 years at this point uh, with, with the National Organ Transplant Act, NODA, um, which uh, there's a long history there. Um, the, the field, in some respects, is heavily overregulated. I thank my, one of my teachers in this space, uh, uh, Colonel Dr. Tom Peters, um, who, is a, who is a, was a transplant surgeon, uh, now transplant surgeon emeritus down in, in, in Florida. Um, and, and he has taught me, in, in some respects, transplant hospitals are wildly overregulated, unlike any other hospital in America. And there, that's a historical legacy. Martha, in her book, points out uh, many of the other crazy historical legacies that we still live with today in transplant. Um, but the missing piece is anything having to do with living donors. There's no national educational effort to uh, educate living donors, to allay the fear of living donors, to just uh, share with the American uh, uh, population what the opportunity of living donation is. We need to change that. Today's national policy, it is billboards and Facebook pages. And I'm not joking, right? There are uh, billboards put up all over America with pictures of people uh, saying, I need a kidney uh, transplant. Can you donate a kidney to me? There was one in uh, put up in Times Square a few years ago, got a lot of press. 12,000 people called Wild Cornell in response to a, a one billboard in Times Square. That is not the way that kidney transplant policy in this country ought to work. And it's not the way we should be identifying uh, uh, potential donors, uh, much less working with potential donors to actually get them through the program. Because out of 12,000 people who called, um, and it's a wonderful thing that five donated, or maybe it was a little more than five, but that's a wildly inefficient process, and it's not a smart way of going about this. First, we need a national education program. Second, to address the logistics, we need patient navigators that or donor navigators sitting at the side of the donor. Um, about 30 years ago, in the early uh, days of the National Bone Marrow Program, I was privileged enough to be a donor, an anonymous, one of the first anonymous donors in DC. Long story there. I had that public health service nurse at my side every step of the way. So all the mania that Martha had to go through and Shmuley, you had to go through, I didn't have to go through. I had a nurse who was coordinating schedules, who made sure that I knew where I had to be and that every doctor was waiting for me, every test was waiting for me. It was seamless. If I had questions or my wife had, my then new wife had questions, um, you know, this nurse was available for us. She walked me in the operating room. She walked me out of the operating room. She checked in with me the next day, the next day, the next day, the next week, the next week, the next month, et cetera. Every living donor deserves that kind of care, attention, and support. And if we had that, we would remove many of the barriers that uh, Martha identifies in her book and, and that living donors um, you know, experience all the time. Again, these barriers shouldn't be a showstopper, but we can make this process much easier for living donors. So the education pro uh, process, the, the donor navigator process, someone to work with donors and work with the transplant hospitals to make this seamless and as easy as humanly possible. And third, the, the piece that Martha identified, cost reimbursement. Now there is a program today uh, called the National Living Donor Assistance Center. Uh, you can Google it, NALDAC and LDAC, that does provide limited cost reimbursement to specific um, uh, types of people. 
Um, there is a means test, unfortunately. Um, even worse, the means test is on uh, the income thresholds for uh, receipt of cost reimbursement is measured against the recipient's income, not the donor's income. Uh, Congress wrote that into law 25 years ago. No one knows why. So we need to eliminate that, that uh, requirement and correct that. If we've got a means tested, uh, there's much, much better ways to do it. And 350% of the HHS poverty level is, is far too low a barrier. Um, we know that it keeps, there's been a lot of academic work done in this space, that if we could at least guarantee cost neutrality, re reimburse costs uh, for living donors, um, that would radically increase the number of living donors that are able to make it through this process. Um, you know, thankfully, those of us on, on this call, you know, are able to afford it, we're able to afford it, but there's no reason that a living donor um, who is contributing and saving so much to the system, um, you know, should go out of pocket anything. Um, and then there are other opportunities like uh, health insurance uh, for the living donor if, if they have um, any sort of health effects as a result of the donation um, in the out years, you know, that ought to be provided as well. Um, and it's very, very low cost to do so. Um, so the three key principles of the Living Donor Support Act um, will be uh, the education piece, the uh, patient nav donor navigator piece, and the cost reimbursement piece. So there are a bunch of other policies in there to try and make this, uh, this system, A, the focus of federal uh, attention and, and effort, and B, make the, the process for living donors as streamlined as possible. Um, I was hoping to be able to tell you that the legislation has been introduced and everybody ought to write their congressman and senator um, and, and urge support and co-sponsorship of you know, a particular bill number. Unfortunately, we're not there yet, we're close. Um, I have a draft sitting on my computer of, of the legislation that I hope will be introduced in the next few weeks. But when it is, we're gonna um, post a website. Uh, we'll, we'll set up a website so people can communicate with their uh, members of Congress, with their House member and two senators. Um, we'll share that with this audience and as many people who, uh, as possible around the country who can weigh in and urge their representatives to get behind this bill and let's get it across the finish line, this Congress, that's our goal. Beautiful, beautiful, so important, David, thank you for that. So just to pick up on this last point a little further, once this legislation is introduced, um, what is what is the broader strategy? So we want people to contact members of Congress, and are there other ways to participate to you know to advance this? Yes, uh, we we hope so. We are still in the process of of uh, fleshing out exactly um, how that happens. But um, the first is to email your member of Congress. Uh, then hopefully we will we will uh, build up the resources so that folk uh, that the people all around the country, when their members of Congress come home to the districts, uh, they can meet up with them. Um, you know, at, at uh, various meetings or in the congressman's district office, those one-on-one -on -one contact, contacts uh, with, Mar with, with which Martha is already engaged in um, and, and other living donors are also engaged in, um, you know, there's nothing that beats that kind of one-on-one of -on -one dialogue uh, with a member of Congress to get them to focus. Members of Congress are busy. They've got hundreds of different issues coming at them every day. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately, uh, 20, 30 years ago, transplant was a very was was the focus of Congress. Every year, there would be two, three, four transplant bills advanced through the Congress, and it, you know, in the hopes of improving pol policy. Some have worked, some have not. Um, unfortunately, in the last 20 years, we see a transplant bill maybe once every three, four years. 
it, Congress is no longer longer focused on this issue, um, and they should be for you know. And I would argue for two reasons: a, uh, because it's the right thing to do. We are sa- literally going to save lives with this legislation. Um, b, because it's going to save money. Also, I've used this, this statistic earlier, and this is a government statistic that I personally think is too low. Every transplant we do, we save one hundred and thirty-six thousand dollars net to the federal government and the Medicare program. And at a time when the Medicare program is going broke. And, you know, we read about that all the time. This is a great opportunity um, to both not only do good, but to, uh, you know, uh, save money for the program. One other fast statistic about uh, um, uh, a living donation, a a donation from a living donor uh, probably serves the the recipient twice as well as a, a donation from a deceased donor. A deceased donor kidney lasts on average 10 years. A living donor kidney lasts on average 20 years. That not only means that the recipient is doing better, but it also means we can move people off the transplant waiting list much faster. Because a lot of recipients of of deceased donation go back for a second uh, transplant. That was my mom. She received two transplants before she passed away. Um, So we can not only have much better health outcomes for the recipients through living donation, but accelerate and shrink that that, uh, waiting list much, much faster which only makes you know the cost savings all the greater um, if if you're looking at the uh, the fisc side of it from the Medicare program perspective. So beautiful, let me stop. Beautiful. There. Yeah. So friends, we should all in our own districts organize people related to the connected to this issue, so that we have a team ready to meet with our members of Congress in every district around the country. And if you need any support in thinking about how to organize that, reach out to Ernestetic. We're happy to partner with you to think about how to approach such a meeting. Um, now, David, unfortunately, it's not going to hit the headlines of every major newspaper when the, when the legislation is introduced. How can people stay informed to know when the timing is right? And how can they have a one pager with the facts so they can do that? Does the Kidney Transplant Collaborative have an email list people can join? How can people be on the list to be advocates? Right. Excellent question. We are um, so a two part answer. One, we are building that email list and and. Um, if you go to the Kidney Transplant Collaborative website, the, the, the post is up on the uh, um, in, in the chat, and I'm sure you'll share it with others, right? We have that one pager on the website right now. Where the is actual, that? The, draft, the draft, draft legislative text and um, a section-by-section analysis, a, a slide deck that explains the background of this issue. They're all available on the website. Um, you'll see on the KTC website, uh, there's a section that says policy priorities. All the documents are there. Um, and again, and to get on that email better. list, should they just send an email to the contact on that website? Exactly. Okay. Beautiful. Exactly. And we'll build it out from there. And, and um, that way we'll let folks know. And again, you know, through Orientetic, we can, uh, as soon as this bill is introduced, you know, you'll know about it. You can put the word out and, and we'll uh, drive our help and support from there. Friends, it is, it is great to fast on Yom Kippur. It is great to remove your chametz for Pesach. But to be a Jew means you advocate for um, uh, living kidney donation. We, we join this. This is like the essence of what it means to be a Yid. So Martha, um, don't, I, you know, you've raised, the, you've, you've raised this issue about how donors have been promised to be at the top of the waiting list. And is that at risk now? Um, you know, and, um, and wouldn't that dis- dissuade many, discourage many uh, potential donors from wanting to you know, feel secure in doing this. 
That's a really good question. So this wasn't really part of my calculation when I set, set off on this mission to save Deb Porter Gill's life. But as I went through the process, one of the things they keep telling you at the transplant clinic is if you ever need a transplant yourself, big asterisk, highly unlikely because kidney donors are so well screened. Shmuley, you and I are the healthiest people in the world. We probably have the best kidneys in the world. They're going to go for a hundred years, but God forbid, you know, you go play professional football and you damage your remaining kidney. There's a promise that living kidney donors get priority points, which will take them very high to the top of the transplant list. There was a big kerfluffle the last couple of months that in reorganizing the way they allocate donors, UNOS was failing to explicitly confirm that process. And I have to say, this is a real tribute to advocacy. Living kidney donors, we app, and people really piled on. I wrote, Shmuley, I know you wrote to comment on the UNOS website. David worked on the weekend, right after Shabbat ended, I could see that Sunday morning you were all over it to be sure that the Kidney Transplant Collaborative weighed in, many other groups of donors and of kidney physicians weighed in, and in fact, so so put pressure on UNOS that they have now come out and publicly said, we will prioritize living kidney donors. And in fact, they said something I didn't know, which is that previously that promise of prioritization was not given to liver donors and lung donors, people who give a part of one of those vital organs. And they would now extend that priority to people who have given other organs as well. It's a much smaller group. Mostly the world needs kidneys and the world gives kidneys, but these other things exist as well. So it's a really good example of how advocacy works. Within five days, Eunice was publicly stating, we're on this. So it was very gratifying. I've never been part of a grassroots movement that works so quickly. Wonderful. We have a question here from Eddie Calvis Calderon. Yes, thank you so much, Rabbi. And I think this might be more for David. Uh, David, Uri Litzetic prides itself in standing up for the undocumented community. Um, but I've noticed that in several states, there's actually been barriers for the undocumented community to receive organs. Um, uh, I'm looking here at an article from Brown University that talks about how there is multiple barriers for undocumented uh, communities to be organ donors, but not to be able to receive organ donations. I'm wondering if you have any um, any um, uh, conversations that you've heard uh, in, in your advocacy and, and, and policy that have addressed uh, these issues, because I also know that I um, that in New York, there's the same problem that's happening. Um, and it's kind of discouraging, you know, a lot of, of communities um, are affected by this. It looks like the uh, state uh, attorney for uh, New York um, was asked this and um, did not give a clear answer. So I'm wondering if you have any insight on that. Yeah, no, it's an excellent question and, and obviously a complicated question. So I'll give you a little bit of good news and, and uh, leave you hanging on, on the rest of the news. Um, right. You know, you have to have insurance coverage to participate in this process. Right. And that immediately excludes a lot of undocumented aliens. Um, and we know that. And there is not an easy solution to that. But you don't get on the. It's part of a larger problem of who's even able to get on the wait list to be eligible for a transplant there as a recipient. If you don't have coverage, you're, you're not getting on that wait list. They wouldn't put you on the wait list, much less dealing with the undocumented issue. 
Um, there's a second, and this is the good news piece, there's a second aspect of this, which is there are a number of people in the United States um, who have a family member outside the United States um, who wants to, to uh, get in uh, to be able to, to be the donor. Um, and our legislation does, um, I believe it's still in, that, in the legislation, our legislation does touch upon that and uh, urges the, you know, and would require the Secretary of HHS to get together with the uh, Secretary of, of DHS, Homeland Security, which runs uh, uh, the visa program, to ease the ability of uh, potential donors outside the United States to quickly get that visa um, so that they can come in and, and be donors. So we, we are aware of the issue, focused on the issue, um, have come up with a partial solution so far. It'll, it'll help and it'll really matter. Um, but you've touched upon a much bigger concern uh, that we don't really have the entire answer for just yet. Thank you, David. Great question, Eddie. So uh, Martha and David, we want to give you both just a chance to offer any concluding uh, comments before we sign off. Martha? David, I knew you were going to throw that ball to me. Um, I think I'd like to conclude where I start, which is that this is a difficult process. It is even more difficult for people lacking resources. Eddie, you, you highlighted a particular group, but there are many other groups that fall in that category as well. When I complain, I complain as a very privileged, upper middle class, highly literate, well-educated white woman. That's the top of the heap where this all starts, it only gets harder from there. And we already know that black people in this country are three times more likely to have chronic kidney disease. Brown people are two times more likely to have chronic kidney disease. So the very people who are most impacted by this are more likely to have friends and relatives burdened with the opportunity to help. Nonetheless, as hard as this was, and as frustrating as it was, and as much work needs to be done, as David pointed to the numbers, every single person who steps up to be a living kidney donor can save a life. And the honor of that and the extraordinary pleasure of that is such a gift that I always want to say to people, in the end, it's worth the trouble. Beautiful. Thank you, Martha. David? Yeah, and I'll, I'll just second that. Um, we, we're trying to solve for some of the problems, but none of the problems here are insurmountable, at, at least for many of the listeners on this call. Um, even if it's a question of, of cost reimbursement, now that is there. Um, there are ways uh, to get through it. If not, there are groups like Renewal, which Martha re referred to earlier. Shmuley, you're well aware of them as well. Um, you know, And they are able to help people through this process and make it as seamless as possible. Um, you know, my experience on, on the bone marrow side and, you know, one day on, on the kidney side as well. But, um, you know, it just completely confirms Martha's experience, your experience as well. This is powerful stuff. And to be a living donor um, is unbeatable, um, you know, for everything that it brings to yourself, uh, to the person whose life you've saved, uh, to the greater society um, and, and beyond. So, um, you know, to folks who are listening, um, we've identified some of the issues that need to be fixed, but don't let that dissuade you. Um, you know, please volunteer, step up. Um, you know, when it's over, you will be all the happier for it. Um, and, and you'll, you know, know that you're a health hero and the health philanthropist that, um, you know, Shmuley, you and Martha really need to be called out for, uh, for your remarkable contributions. So, um, you know, we hope that we just through this conversation, 
we will generate more interest in this issue, uh, bring more living donors to the, to, uh, uh, the fore, and, and uh, hopefully continue to take a, a bite out of the problem and turn this into a real national solution. Very nice, very nice. Friends, uh, being a, a living kidney donor was one of the greatest spiritual and religious journeys and gifts of my life. We wanna make this gift more accessible to more donors, to more recipients, and really a gift to this country as we shared. It's a gift to the collective and, and, and to individuals. So please reach out to us if you're looking for resources, please do uh, go onto the Kidney Transplant Collaborative website so that you can stay abreast there and be prepared to advocate and teach and whatever you can do to support this process. Uh, thank you all for joining. Wishing everyone a Chag Pesach Sameach. And um, as we think about liberation, let's think about all those who are currently trapped in a broken system so that we can do more to bring liberation and dignity to the world. God bless. Thank you both, David. Thank you, Martha. Thank you all for joining so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. <clears throat>